Yeah. <laughs> but we don't know who we're talking about here. It's a very general statement. That's right. <laughs> well, I got the refrigerator on this morning, don't they? Okay, we are in uh, we are in Genesis chapter 31, the last part of the chapter today, and we've been uh, the last couple weeks or so we've been looking at uh, Jacob's departure from Paden Aram, and uh, last week. Uh, Last week, Laban caught up with him and they had their little uh, confrontation there, the beginning of their confrontation, and we'll talk more about that today in today's passage. So we saw, uh, we saw in their uh, confrontation, we looked at, uh, I think last week we started at about verse uh, 31 or so, and we looked down through verse 42, and today we want to pick it up with verse 43 down through the end of the chapter. But uh, for review purposes, go back to verse uh, 31 and following down through there, what do you remember that we talked about last week? It finally reached ahead, didn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he he finally got a chance to tell his father-in-law just what he thought about him. He probably didn't think he was ever going to get that chance, but he sure had his apparently had his speech rehearsed just in case it happened. Uh, so what else? Down on some hill in the middle of a cold night, you're going, you know, just run it through your head many times. Yeah, yeah. He obviously had plenty of time to think about it. What else? Yeah, the only reason he left didn't put it in his hand because it's gone. Yeah. Otherwise, he would have gone across back across the river. Euphrates. Yeah. 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 Y
we have this so we have this great contrast that's drawn between the fear of Isaac and the gods uh, uh, Laban's gods and, and so how, how are Laban's gods portrayed to us in the passage really <laughs> defiled yeah it's just they're they're you know they're stolen they're hidden they're Set upon, and as we talked about last week, they're even menstruated upon. Okay, so I mean, it's just the, just the utter defilement and belittling and demeaning of of these gods, and it's like it's like the Lord is uh, the Lord is just, and He does this from time to time with the pagan and with their idolatry. He just mocks them, you know, and it's just like the the whole story is just mocking Laban's gods and their impotency and their helplessness to be of any help to him or any service to him or to or to care for him and that's in such stark contrast to Jacob's God who loves him and who is present with him who is always present with him and even though he can't be seen he's always there and he cares for Jacob and he blesses Jacob and he disciplines Jacob and he and so it's just such a such a contrast between the gods that is drawn for us in this passage what else My sister called crying and said they were thinking about raising ghosts. I was wondering, I mean, my sister, other sister, said that. She's wondering if that was providential. Uh, it may be. It may be. It may be your next calling in life. <laughs> Leave the law office and go out to the field. Yeah. <laughs> you might want to study that chapter about, about what to do with the rods. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Anything else? Okay, well, uh as uh, uh as Hal was pointing out, uh late or Jacob finally gets his opportunity to to really speak his mind to his father in law, and he does it and he does it very eloquently he does it powerfully and he does it with passion and all this frustration and anger and hurt that comes uh, that he's endured for uh, at least for the last 14 years 13 years uh, finally comes pouring out uh, in uh, in his uh, complaint that he gives to Jacob and he, and he fin- or to Laban and he says there, in verse 42, ending up the passage, he says, if, God, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. And he rendered judgment last night. And of course, that's the referral. He's alluding there uh, to God's appearance in his dream, to, in Laban's dream the night before, to tell Laban not to say anything or do anything uh, negative or positive, just you just keep your hands off of Jacob because he's mine, <clears throat> and that's what he's referring to in God rendering judgment. So we pick it up then in verse 43, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. He says, "Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine." But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to the children whom they have born? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar 
Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sahaditha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid and Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. If you mistreat my daughters or if, the, uh, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold the heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahar, the God of, our, of, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Well, if, if last week we had, as we did, we had this contrast that was drawn between the gods of Laban and uh, the gods uh, and the God of Jacob. Uh, this week, as the story continues, as the story unfolds, we really see a contrast between two peoples. And I'll show you uh, what I mean by that. Uh, but before we get into that, I want, I want you just to, to, to make note that in, in this passage, we have two themes that have kind of run through Genesis, and we've talked about them a number of times uh, going through Genesis, and those things arise again in this passage pretty clearly. And, and they really, if we look at this passage with those things in mind, they'll help us understand what's going on here and help us understand the significance of the passage. And the first theme is the theme of the two lines. You'll remember going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we talked about how throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to encounter these two lines. What are the two lines? Okay, the godly seed or the seed of the woman. And on the other side is the seed of what? No, the, the, the seed of the serpent. Yeah, the seed of the serpent. Okay, so you have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And in the garden, when, when God uh, talks about that uh, to the serpent and to Adam and Eve, what does he tell them is going to be the relationship between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? Okay, ultimately, yes, but, but what is going to be the ongoing dynamic between these two seeds? He says, he says, I will put between your, I will put what? What? Enmity, okay? So there's going to be enmity or strife between these two seeds. Now, as we go through the book of Genesis, all the way through the book of Genesis, we are tracing the seed of the woman. We're tracing what I call the righteous line, or probably better called the line of promise. And the reason it's probably better to call it the line of promises because there are people in the line, as we've seen, that really aren't righteous. Okay, but it is through this 
line of promise that God is carrying out his purpose to bring one ultimately who would crush the serpent's head. And so we are tracing this righteous line or this line of promise or the seed of the woman all the way through Genesis. So as we go through Genesis, we're following this line. And as we follow this line, we periodically come to these little kind of shoot offs of the unrighteous line. And so we'll kind of look off or we'll go down here and we'll look at, for example, the descendants of, of, uh, of uh, Ham or we'll look at the descendants of Cain or we'll look at these different descendants of, a ways down the line. But the one line that we stay with all the way through Genesis, we always come back to and follow is this righteous line. This idea of the righteous line and the distinction between these two lines the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, this theme that goes all the way through Genesis becomes pronounced again in this passage and we'll see it uh, as we look at the passage. The second theme that comes up in this passage <coughs> that we have talked about over and over again is the idea of covenant or the theme of covenant. And we've talked about that so much you're probably tired of hearing about it, but, it's, but it is crucial to understanding Genesis and it's important in understanding what's actually going on here in this passage because quite clearly here in this passage we have once again this idea of the cutting or the making of a covenant. Okay, so... Uh, by way of review, then, just to kind of refresh our minds, what is a covenant? Why do they make covenants? What do these covenants accomplish? Okay, so what, what do we remember about covenants that we've learned so far? Okay, they establish a relationship. Okay, they establish a Why is that necessary? Okay, it's a patriarchal culture. Okay. And so everything, all the relationships within the culture are defined by their relationship to the patriarchal clan. Okay. So if you have somebody in this patriarchal clan and somebody over here in this patriarchal clan, they have no, they really have no sense of obligation or responsibility to one another. So the function of a covenant was to establish a fictive kinship. Okay, was to establish, in essence, a kinship between this this person in this clan and this person in this clan, so they would have some degree of obligation or responsibility to one another. Okay, so the purpose of a covenant was to establish a fictive kinship, so that there would be some sense of of duty or obligation or responsibility. What was the what was typically what was the covenant ceremony? What did it consist of? Okay, which, which is the significance of it. It's always translated in our English Bibles as make a covenant, but in the Hebrew it's really cut a covenant. And the reference is to the slaughtering of an animal or multiple animals, as we saw in the case of God's covenant with Abraham. Okay, But it involves the slaughtering of these animals, which represents what happens to you if you don't keep the covenant. Okay, What kinds of covenants were there? We talked about two different kinds of covenants. Or you're kind of 
Okay. Okay, and that's referred to as a suzerain vassal covenant. You have the suzerain, the king, the, the mighty king, or the powerful king, and then you have the lesser person or the lesser king, and he's the vassal. So you have these suzerain vassal covenants. Okay. What's the other kind of covenant? Okay, where they're both basically seen as equals, and we call those parity covenants. So you have suzerain vassal covenants, you have parity covenants, okay? Now, all of that, all that stuff we've learned about covenants helps clarify the significance and the meaning of the passage that we're looking at today as we understand what's going on here in this relationship and in this, in this uh, uh, institution of a covenant between Laban and Jacob, okay? So keep that in mind. We're... We're thinking again about this idea of two lines and we're thinking uh, a lot about covenants as we go through uh, the passage. Uh, when we pick up the passage, as the passage opens, we have in verse 43, we have Laban's response to Jacob. Now, Jacob has just gone through this eloquent complaint where he just poured out his heart and said, you've, you've wronged me in this way and you've wronged me in that way and, and I had to sneak away because if I hadn't snuck away then, then I would have left empty handed and he just really laid it all out on the line. And at this point you expect Laban to go, okay, maybe I've been a little hard, you know, I can understand, but you know, so what is Laban's response? <laughs> It's all his. It's all his. And it, I look at that sometimes and I think as a parent, sometimes you give your kids all this stuff. Well, the reason I have it is because you've given it to them. The third viewpoint is, this is all my Well, and I can understand it too, even more so because we're talking about a patriarchal culture. And remember, in a patriarchal culture, the patriarch over the clan, he's the top honcho and he's responsible for everything, okay? And everybody who lives in his house is part of his clan, okay? And so that's how he views it. But he has entered into an agreement with Laban that he would give Laban his daughters, uh, Jacob, that he would give Jacob his daughters for wives and that he would give him all this stuff, okay? And, and so he has entered into these agreements uh, and... And so we can, to some degree, as you say, sympathize a little bit with Laban, but he's not getting the point. He made agreements. He made numerous agreements with Jacob, and he has violated and disregarded every one of them. Okay. So he looks at all this and he says, it's all mine. Everything there is mine. And so since it's all mine, I can act to take it back. Right. Is that what he says? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. You know, it's interesting. He, he only mentions the dream once, but, but several more times he alludes to it. And he does here again. You know, I can't do anything. You know, I, I can't do anything because if I do anything to you, it injures my daughters and it injures their my grandchildren. What he refers to here is his sons. Uh, so. He, he can't, there's really nothing he can do, but primarily he can't act because God has said, don't you touch this guy. Okay. So he's, he's really rendered incapable of doing anything 
to get back what he considers to be his. You know, what's interesting is that he is so cocky in his own way and in his own eyes, but yet he's fearful. He's terribly fearful, and that'll come out more and more as we go through the passage. Yes, he's very much afraid. He's afraid of God, and he's afraid of Jacob. Okay, so so since he can't do anything, what is his proposal? Let's make a covenant. Let's cut a covenant together. Okay. Now, before we go into that, I want you to notice something about this passage. I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through it, but as you read through it, one thing that, that, that flows through the whole passage is, is these sets of two. Sets of two. See if you can find them. What's the very first pair that we encounter in this story? Excuse me? Uh, in today's passage. In, in this passage we're looking at today, beginning in verse 44. Uh, What's the first pair? You and I. You and I. Okay. So there's uh, two distinct parties in this group. Let me get to my notes here so I don't miss any of them. Okay. There are two distinct parties in verse 44. Okay. Then in verse 44 and 48, we get another pair of something. The first part is in 44. Uh, okay, it's you and me or you and I. That's the first pair, okay? Uh, it helps if I could ask questions rather than get the answers I'm looking for. But you'll notice he says in verse 44, he says, uh, we'll make a covenant and it will be a witness, okay? In verse 48, he says, this heap is a witness between you and me. Uh, excuse me, that's not the verse I'm looking for. Uh, uh, well, that's yeah. We'll get to that. But uh, but there's another point at which he refers to God as the witness. Okay. So we have we have two parties. We have two witnesses. The two witnesses are the covenant and God. Okay. Then we have uh, how many monuments do we have? Excuse me. Okay. We have a heap and a pillar. So we have two monuments. Okay. And then we have. Uh, we have two languages in which the, this location is named, okay? And the, the first language is Aramaic uh, from, the, uh, from uh, Laban, who's Aramean, okay? So it's his language, and he calls the place what? Yeah, what I said, yeah. Jeber Sahadatha or whatever, okay? I'm just going to see if anybody wanted to risk it. <laughs> okay, so that's the Aramaic name, yeah. That's the Aramaic name, okay? But then it also has a couple names in Hebrew. So there's, so there's uh, a, a two languages are used to describe this place. And, and one is the Aramaic name uh, that, that Laban gives to it. And then there is the, he, the two Hebrew names that uh, that Jacob gives to it. One is the name Galid, which means the same as as uh, uh, Jaber Sadehatha or whatever that is. Okay, uh, it means the same, which means a heap of stones. But he also calls it Mizpah in Hebrew, which means a watchtower. Okay, so there's two languages that are used to describe this place. Uh, 
there are also possibly, and this isn't real clear, but there are possibly two meals because twice he refers to them eating in verse 46 and 54. That may be two distinct meals. It may be uh, a reference to the same meal. There are, in verses 50 and 53, there are two treaty provisions. What are the two treaty provisions? Okay, there's one in reference to his daughters. That's the first part. Okay, so that's all one part. Okay, so there's the part in reference to his daughters. And then in 53, what's the second part of the treaty? Excuse me? Uh, no. Uh, excuse me, 52. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a boundary, okay? So, one part of the treaty has to do with the treatment of his wives, that he can't mistreat him, he can't marry other wives, okay? So, it's, it's the treatment of the wives. And the other part is the establishing of the boundaries between Jacob and Laban, okay? Uh, and then, uh, and then finally, we have two deities who are called to witness and judge in this matter between them. Okay? And the two deities are the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. And so he refers in verse 53 to the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. And then he describes the God of Nahor as the God of their father. Okay? Who is Abraham and Nahor's father? Terah, okay, right, okay, it's Terah. So what he's what he's saying there is he's calling Laban here is calling these two gods as judges and witnesses, and and he refers to the God of Abraham, and then he refers to the God of Nahor, who he says is really the God of Abraham and Nahor's father. So what he's really saying is Terah's God was top dog. And Abraham came along lately and just ran off and started worshiping this other God. That's what he's saying. Okay. So he's drawing a distinction between Terah's God, who is also Nahor's God, and Abraham's God. He's drawing a distinction between them. And he uses in the Hebrew there uh, in, uh, in verse uh, uh, 50... Uh, uh, in 52, he says, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. The word judge there in the Hebrew is plural. Okay. The significance of that is it makes it clear that Laban is talking about two deities. Okay. So the point I'm trying to make is that throughout this passage, we get this constant set of pairs. We have two parties. We have two languages. We have two monuments. We have two deities. We have two witnesses. We have two parts to the covenant. Okay? There's this sets of two. And what the passage is trying to do is trying to communicate to us very clearly is now there is a, 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 a strong line of demarcation between the peoples of Laban and the peoples of Jacob. Now, up to this point, remember, what, what did Abraham do when he wanted to find a wife for Isaac? What did he do? Pardon? Okay, he sent a servant back to his family. Right? And back 
to his place. So you go back to my country and to my kinsman and you find a wife for my son there. Okay. Then when Isaac wanted Jacob to find a, a wife, what did he tell Jacob? Yeah, go back to your family. Go back to your family and go back to our land and find a wife. Okay. So up till now, there's been this, this understanding that this is all really kind of one family. At this point, and this is why this passage is significant, at this point now, there is a, a line of demarcation drawn right down the middle of this family, and they are separated into two distinct people groups. They are separated into two distinct nations. Now, was the covenant well, it's primarily between them. But it does appear that because they set up these monuments that they understand it will be between the two family groups. We do later, incidentally, we run into conflicts when we get into the books of, a book of Kings. We start running into conflicts between the Hebrews and the Aramans. Uh, <coughs> but uh, so... Primarily, it's a, it's a covenant between, the fam, between Jacob and Laban, but it's also, by extension, a, co- a, a covenant between their, their families and their descendants. Okay? Now, how do we know that the parties involved here understand that this is what's happening? Well, we do know that they understand this is what's happening, that there is a permanent line of demarcation that is now drawn between these two families. And they are now uh, between, uh, down the middle of this family, and it is now two distinct people groups. It is now two distinct nations with separate languages and separate gods, etc., etc. How do we know? What is the biggest clue we see that, that they understand that? Well, the biggest clue we see is when Laban says to Jacob, let's cut a covenant. Okay? Because when he says, let's cut a covenant, what is he tacitly acknowledging? Well, the first thing is he's asking for a parity. So he's he's recognizing that they're equals. So here we have the father-in-law asking the son-in-law... For a covenant. So this guy who's thought all along that he's top dog and totem pole, so to speak, he's chief honcho, is now suing for a parity covenant. So he's recognizing Jacob's equality with him. So this is the patriarch, Laban, now acknowledging that Jacob is on a plane equal with him. Okay, so the, par- the, the fact that we have a parity covenant happening here is an indication that Laban understands that. And there's something else there. Why? Uh, we'll go back to what we've just covered about covenants. Why would you have a covenant? What was the purpose of a covenant? It was to establish what? Okay, but, but you only did this between what? You never see an example of a covenant within a family. Okay? Yeah, you have covenants between different clans. You have covenants to establish a fictive kinship. Well, why do we need a fictive kinship here? We've got a father-in-law and a son-in-law. We've got a father and his daughters. 
Why do we need a fictive kinship here? Because Laban recognizes now that Jacob really is of a different family. He's of a different clan. He is a patriarch on a level with me. Oh, 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 yeah, he's definitely afraid. Okay, uh, and and we'll get to that. So, so what we what we clearly see here then, and the significance of this passage is that now, once and for all, we have a line of demarcation between the Aramean and the Hebrew. And Jacob goes this way, and he is this family, and the Arameans go this way, and they're this family. And so within the context of Genesis and the idea of the two lines, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the line is being drawn right down through the middle of this passage. And Laban represents the seed of the serpent, and Jacob represents the seed of the woman. Okay? So that line that we've been following all through Genesis now is being marked out even more clearly for us. Okay, And we've been kind of toying around with, with all these people back in Haran and the people back in Paden Aram and we've been going back there and getting our wives there and, and, and calling that back the home country. None of that anymore. No more going back to Paden Aram to get wives. Where does Jacob get wives for his sons? Well, we don't know, but there's no going back there's no going back to Paden Aram to get wise for his sons. Okay, that's over with, because now they are. There is this line of demarcation that is drawn. So then, what happens then is that Laban becomes for us in this passage a representative of the seed of the serpent, and Jacob becomes a representative of the seed of the woman or the line of promise. And so the question we might ask ourselves is. What does the seed of the serpent look like? What are the characteristics of those who are not of the righteous line? What do they look like? How do they act? And we see some clues in in Laban, right? So what are some of the things we see in Laban's conduct here? Some of you have been trying to bring up some things here. But what are some of the things we've seen in Laban's behavior here, in his conduct here, that are a clue as to how the seed of the serpent thinks and acts. And okay, it's all about you. Okay, it's you know it's classic there in verse forty-three. You know the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. Everything you see is mine. And we see it again later. You'll notice that Jacob sets up a pillar. And then Jacob calls the kinsmen to gather stones and make a heap. Right? Uh, So we saw that in, in verse 45 and 46. See that? Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they gathered stones. Okay? No, no, they're two separate, two separate. Okay. Uh, now look at verse fifty-one. What does Jet Laban say? Doesn't this guy make you mad? <laughs> I mean, this is a class. This is just like what he did back uh, uh, six years earlier. Remember when they made the agreement about how how Jacob was going to get paid? And Jacob said, I'll go today. I will go out and separate the flocks. Remember how he said that? Who did it? Who went out and separated the flocks? 
Laban did it. So on the very day they made the agreement that Jacob would go out and separate the flocks, Laban violates the agreement and goes out and separates the flocks. Okay? This guy is, you know, this guy is a basket case. All right? So he, he just makes you mad. <laughs> he does me anyway. So here, Jacob takes all the initiative. He puts up this pillar and then he takes the initiative to erect this, what's called a cairn or this heap of stones. Okay? So he takes the initiative. He does all that. And then who takes credit for it? Laban takes credit for it. And it just illustrates the point that with the righteous, life is all about them. I mean, excuse me, with the unrighteous, life is all about them. With the seed of the serpent, everything centers around me and my life and what's important to me and what counts for me. Okay. Well, the unrighteous, the truth doesn't matter. They always have a way to twist it around. Yeah, yeah. It's always twisted in their favor because life, everything is about them because they have no reference point outside of themselves. And that's what that's the contrast that we see with Jacob, as we'll get on here in just a moment. But so so it's all about them. What else do we see in Laban's behavior? And it's almost like they're blind. They can't see what's all. Yeah. 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 What else? Well, they use religion. I mean, I was thinking about this, that Laban, you know, I, I see people, and I think you've mentioned people in here, that just, you know, you talk to them, they say the same things, do the same things, and they go out and do something totally contradictory, and it doesn't even seem to register. Yeah. And, and we wonder, how can you say one thing and then... Because it, it's not, it's, there's no depth. They just, religion is just one more thing to... to and you see politicians doing it. You know, if they need to be a Christian in this group, they can talk Christian. If they don't, they don't. And it's just something to be used for their benefit rather than to honor God. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's exactly what Laban is doing. Now, he does an interesting thing in this regard. When he wants to enjoin Jacob to treat his, his daughters properly. Okay. Notice what he says there. Uh, in uh, uh, well, yeah, in forty-nine, yeah, as he's getting ready to say, uh, it says, "For he said, May the Lord, who is that? Yahweh. Yahweh.' Okay, so may Yahweh watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. Now, I've already shown you that he refers to two gods earlier, right? I mean, two gods later, he refers to two separate deities. Okay." But when he's enjoining Jacob to do something, which deity does he refer to? He refers to Jacob's God, doesn't he? He refers to Yahweh. Now, on one sense, as Mike points out, that's a bit hypocritical. You know, he's just kind of using God. But there is something here, I think, of importance that we learn about the wicked is they expect us to live according to our faith. They may not do it, but they expect us to do it. So he uses the name of Jacob's God because he believes that that will resonate with Jacob. That's why he doesn't refer to Nahor's God when he's trying to enjoin Jacob, but he refers to Jacob's God. And that's one thing we learn about the wicked. Whatever their problems are, they expect us to live according to the faith we confess. And that's a good thing. Whether they're hypocrites or not, 
we need to recognize that if we name the name of Christ, the wicked expect us to live that way. And however much they may laugh at us or ridicule us or mock us or deny our faith, when we name the name of Christ and do not live that way, they are disappointed. This not only gives them reason to laugh or mock or not believe, but they are disappointed in us. And there is an honor and a respect we get when we name the name of Christ and the wicked watch us and when we're tempted to do otherwise or when we have cause to do otherwise, we still live faithfully to the God we profess. They honor that. They admire that. And they respect that in us, even though they may never admit it. And one of the reasons why they are so disappointed when we name the name of Christ and then don't live up to it is because the only thing we are offering to them as hope, we have evidence we don't trust in ourselves. And they don't have any hope apart from the Christ that we offer them. And if we cannot live consistently with the Christ we offer to them, that's a crushing blow to them. Because the... Because what it's saying is, the only hope we're offering to them is no hope at all. And so it strikes me that Laban, in all of his hypocrisy, and all his manipulation, and all his lying, and all his deceiving, he wants Jacob to live according to the God he confesses. Okay? What else? What else do we see about the wicked? Several of you have already mentioned this in the course of our study this morning. Well, he will uh, a little bit later. He will, but I would I, I I would admit to you, I agree with you that to some degree Laban knows he's off the hook because he knows his gods are incapable of holding him accountable. His gods can't hold him. He, his, he can't even find his gods right now. Because <laughs> Rachel's been sitting on him. <laughs> okay. he can't, so, 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 but he knows Jacob's God has the power to hold him accountable because he's seen it. He's already had a dream. So he knows Jacob's God can hold him accountable. And to some degree, like you say, he's kind of off the hook. Okay. What else though? What, what is, what's driving Laban's action here? Why is Laban wanting a covenant and stipulating all these things? Fear. Fear. <laughs> That's another thing that characterizes the seed of the serpent. Is they're afraid. Okay? They're afraid of all kinds of things. But in this passage, what is Laban afraid of? He's afraid of Jacob's God and he's afraid of Jacob. Now, does he have reason to be afraid of Jacob? Have we seen anything at all anywhere in the story that indicates that Laban or that Jacob has contemplated retaliation? Nobody has reason to be afraid of Jacob because Jacob has prospered and taken all of this. I mean, he has no reason to be afraid of Jacob. <laughs> In his own mind, he has reason to be afraid. But Jacob has never done anything that warrants this kind of fear. See, I don't even know if I would say he's afraid of Jacob. I think it's more of a risk. Afraid of no, I think he's just afraid of 
Well, yeah, I, I think that's true. Yes, I think that's true. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah, well, I think so. Yeah. I think that did wake him up. To, he realized that Jacob had a legitimate complaint. Yeah. Or at least he had a complaint, whether he considered it legitimate. Yeah. But, but ultimately, he's afraid of Jacob. But I agree with Mike. The re- reason he's afraid of Jacob is because he's afraid of Jacob's God. Because he knows that God's hand is on Jacob. Yeah, well, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And my point is, is that the wicked flee when no one pursues. My point is, is that one of the characteristics of the seed of the serpent, of the unrighteous line, is that their, their lives are dominated by fear. In fact, what does Scripture take, tell us? But that they live in fear of death their whole lives. The, the, the wicked's life is dominated by fear. That's the significance of the promise to us that perfect love casts out what? All fear. And Jacob, Jacob, now Jacob sometimes operates in fear too, and we even see him talking about fear in this passage. But at least Jacob has a context outside of himself that he can go to. The wicked don't have that. So Jacob can go outside of himself. And he can go to God, and God is his defense, and God is his shield. Okay. Now, when we get into the passage next week, we're going to see Jacob encounters a situation that's very scary to him. It's terrifying to him. When he finds out Esau is coming, incidentally, I misspelled Esau on your study sheets. I trust you'll forgive me for that, but on the title up there, I, I have it misspelled. I saw that. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, as he encounters Esau coming with 400 men, that's reason to be afraid. Okay. So what does Jacob do when he's afraid? Well, come next week and find out. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you. He prays. He goes to God. And that's the difference. That the, that the seed of the righteous, the seed of the woman, when we encounter terrifying and fearful situations, we have a God that we go to who we know is with us and cares for us and watches over us. He's not been stolen and hidden under a saddle and set upon by a menstruating woman. Okay? So, well, that tells us a little bit as, as we see this line of demarcation and we see these two distinct now groups and God is pointing out to us there really is a difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We've looked at the seed of the, uh, seed of the serpent and we've thought a little bit about them. But in the, in the last bit of time that we have here this morning, let's think about Jacob. And, and what characterizes his life in this story? Well, after Laban says, what's the first thing Jacob does after Laban proposes a covenant? Okay. And first, what did he put up first? He puts up a pillar. He takes a stone and he sets it up as a pillar. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, okay. It's Bethel all over again, isn't it? Remember what happened at Bethel? After he had that dream and he woke up and he went, 
God is in this place and I did not know it. And he takes the stone upon which he had laid his head and he sets it up as a pillar. It is a memorial. He says, and he says, this will be the house of God. If God does all this stuff that he says and I come back, this is going to be God's house. It's a memorial. It's a permanent marker for Jacob. So that Jacob will always remember, God met me here. God talked to me here. God changed my life here. And that's as he's leaving for Paden Aram. Now he's coming out of Paden Aram and he reaches the hill country of Gilead and he has this encounter with Laban. And, 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 and they're obviously not reaching any agreement at all. And Laban asks for a covenant. And the first thing Jacob does is he sets up another pillar. It's like the bookends of his sojourn. The pillar at Bethel and the pillar at Gilead. They are the bookends of his sojourn. Now, actually, we're going to go on and we're going to find another bookend over here. Okay, when he gets back to Bethel. And we'll talk about that when he returns to Bethel. But that's going to be a long time. There's going to be some other things that have to happen first before he even gets back to Bethel. Okay, but but for now, the bookends of his sojourn are Bethel and Gilead. And he has erected a memorial. Now, I want you to notice that this stone that he erects is for him. It's really just for him. You notice he erects it. He doesn't employ any help. He doesn't ask for any help from anybody else. He erects it. Then, if you'll notice, uh, down in, uh, in verse 51, Laban says to Jacob, Behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. So, remember, again, he's taking credit for everything. But notice what he says after that. This heap is a witness, or excuse me, verse 53, the God of Abraham, 52, I'm sorry. Okay, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. And you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. Do you see that? The heap is significant Uh, To Laban, only the heap is significant. But to Jacob, both the heap and the pillar are significant. What I'm trying to say is, is this pillar really doesn't have anything to do with Laban. It really doesn't have anything to do with the covenant. This pillar is a memorial that Jacob has erected as a reminder to him of what God has done there at Gilead. So that he will not forget what God has done at Gilead. And Laban knows that. Laban, the pillar means nothing to Laban because Laban's not been to Bethel. The pillar means nothing to Laban, but it means everything to Jacob. And Laban knows that it means everything to Jacob. And so Laban says, when you come by this place again and you see this heap and you see the pillar, you don't come by to me for harm. Okay. Sometimes, you know, it wasn't Jacob's idea to cut the covenant anyway, and I'm thinking, why would you do that? Why every other time you think that? So, it's almost like Jacob is 
kind of thing where I was in my mind. I said, God, this is really between me and you because I don't trust this guy, but I, you're the one that's protected me so far. This is a reminder. You're going to protect me from him. I don't trust him anyway. And it's almost like it's being between Jacob and God. Uh, absolutely. Jacob's saying, it doesn't do a bit of good to make a covenant from Laban, but God... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, and, I, and he doesn't actually call it a covenant with God, but I think that's essentially what's going on. He's saying, God, this is between you and me, and I see now you've drawn a line between Laban and I. You've made a distinction in our families, and I'm going my way, and he's going his way, and God, this is just between you and me, and my life is dependent on you. And that'll become very clear in the next chapter when we get into chapter 32 how dependent he is now on God and he recognizes that dependence so yes I think that is exactly what's going on here then we have the erection of the, the cairn or the heap of stones and, and, and this is set up as a memorial of the covenant between the two okay now it is true that he's had all kinds of agreements with Laban that Laban has violated but when you move it from simply a verbal agreement like they had before to a covenant with the slaughtering of an animal that has a whole that's that's taken it to a whole new level. So it's kind of the difference between shaking hands with somebody, agreeing that you're going to mow their lawn for them, you know, while they're gone on vacation, and signing a covenant with somebody that you're going to buy their house. Those are two different things, okay? As far as as far as escalation. So so I think to some degree, I think Laban's appeal for a covenant here is in part because he knows he can't be trusted. And so what he's saying is, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to have to go a step further here so that you'll trust me on this one, okay? I, don't, I still don't think he can be trusted, but, but the point is a covenant then implies that if I don't keep the covenant, you can kill me, okay? And that's the whole point of the covenant, okay? So, so one thing we see about Jacob is that whatever else is going around, on around him as he's dealing with the world and the seed of the serpent, everything with him is, has to do with God. And that's why he erects the pillar. It has, it's between him and God. And that's a stark contrast. Remember, the, the seed of the wicked, the seed of the serpent, it's all about them. With Jacob, he recognizes it's all about God. And it's all about the promises of God and the covenant of God. And it makes an entirely different uh, effect as far as how we view things and, and how we address life situations and, and how we relate to the world. Because everything that we do is done in the context of God. And it's for the glory of God. It's for the honor of God. It's for the purposes of God. Well, the second thing about Laban is you'll, or Jacob is you'll notice that when after Laban invokes the, these two deities, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, uh, who was the God of, our fa- of their father, okay, then Jacob swears an oath. By whom? By the fear of Isaac. And so once again, we have God referred to by Jacob as the fear of Isaac. We just had it in last week's lesson. Okay. And this is something else that we we discover about Jacob now as he's he spent this 20 years. When he left, when he left, for Peyton Aram, Isaac's God was to Jacob was just kind of well, that's Daddy's God, you know. And he kind of gave lip service to him, and but he's been through 20 years now of experiences that have brought him to a point 
where he recognizes that the God of Isaac is an awesome God. I think the New International translates it there, the fear of Isaac translates the awesomeness of Isaac or something like that. Okay. The idea is that Jacob now recognizes the awesomeness and greatness of this God. Well, what has Jacob encountered over the last 20 years that has brought him to a point, and particularly in these last few hours as he's had this, this uh, been pursued by Laban and then had this encounter with Laban, what are the things that have brought Jacob to the point that he recognizes Daddy's God now as this awesome God of Isaac? Well, there are two things that Jacob's gone through, pronounced things that Jacob has gone through over the last 20 years. One is a great deal of affliction. And the other is just an overwhelming amount of blessing. He's had both together, hasn't he? <laughs> He's had both affliction and blessing. He calls his 20 years there with Laban an affliction and hard toil. That's how he refers to it. But he also recognizes that throughout those 20 years, God's hand of blessing has been upon him. And that process, that, that process of going through life and experiencing great affliction and great blessing simultaneously has brought Jacob to recognize the awesomeness of God. He is an awesome God. He is the fear of Isaac. And that's the one I worship and that's the one I swear by and that's the one I obey and that's the one I trust. Well, so finally he offers the sacrifice and they have the meal and then they spend the night there and it says then that Laban gets up in the morning and he kisses his sons and daughters, the sons being the grandsons, and his daughters goodbye and he blesses them. Uh, it's interesting there, it doesn't tell us what the blessing was. It did give us. It did tell us what Laban's blessing was that he gave on Rebekah when Rebekah left uh, many years earlier. But it doesn't tell us what the blessing was. It just says he blessed them. And, but then it says that Laban departed and went to his own place. And so we see Laban riding off into the sunrise, I guess. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> riding off to the North Star. He's, he's, he's headed north. He's going to his own place. And we're going to now follow Jacob in 32.1 and on. We're going to follow Jacob as he goes on further south to the river Jabbok and he encounters Esau and all this. So we're going to follow Jacob. And so what we see is we have these two distinct lines. We have these two distinct lines of people, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the thing we discover here at the very end of this passage is they have two distinct destinies. They have two distinct destinies. And Laban is going. He's departing and going to his place. And Jacob is going on to embrace the promises of God and the covenant of God and the land that God has given to him and all that that entails. And it's a world of difference. Yeah, right. Uh, yes, we are. Yeah, we're going to encounter those idols again. Yeah. Yeah, those idols become a factor again. Okay, so that's it for now. Next week, we'll go on to the Jabbok.